Hey there, Poemcasters, and welcome back to today's episode of Poemcast. Today, we're going to be bringing you a Poemcast Little, where we talk to you about little topics that have great importance. Today, we're going to talk about hyperkalemia. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. So, are you saying hyperkalemia is a little topic? Isn't this important? Okay. Get it? <laughs> what's, the, what's the K? Potassium. That's a joke. What's the potassium? What is the patient's potassium? Hopefully not high. So hyperkalemia is a common problem in the intensive care unit that can lead to a life-threatening scenario if it's unrecognized, untreated, or undertreated. Hyperkalemia is going to be defined, depending on your lab, as a potassium level greater than 5.5 is generally agreed upon. So let's get down to why potassium and hyperkalemia cause so many problems. It's important to understand the physiology behind it. Did I just say that? Oh, you said it. Cat's out of the bag. No. Oh, yeah. So potassium is the major intracellular cation. In fact, 98% of the potassium in the body is found inside your cells. Only about 2% is found in the extracellular environment, and that includes both serum and interstitial fluid. It's crucial for life because it's one of the main determinants of your cell membrane potential. Oh, cations. I haven't heard that term in a while. Shout out, throwback to Biophys, EBT. <laughs> all animal cells, which includes our own, we're all animals, doo -doo -doo, are surrounded by a cell membrane, which serves as a barrier to diffusion in the movement of ions and other charged particles. So typically all eukaryotic cells maintain a negative voltage in the cell interior compared to the cell exterior, usually around minus 40 to minus 80 millivolts. <laughs> now, this cell membrane potential is important for many functions, most principally action potentials in cardiac membranes, muscle cells, and nerves. The reason we have this membrane potential is because of my favorite protein in the body, the sodium-potassium ATPase. Yes, I have a favorite protein, and that's okay. I don't have a favorite protein. <laughs> Just tell me another one, I'll pick that one. Uh, potassium leak channels? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I can't get on board with that. Anyway, the sodium-potassium ATPase and potassium leak channels establish this environment where you have a ton of sodium outside the cell and a ton of potassium inside the cell. So clearly I have nothing to add to this physiology section, so I'm just going to let Jeremy continue talking. <laughs> if you're going to remember nothing else about the physiology of hyperkalemia, I want you to check out our show notes and look at the image of the cardiac action potential. The cardiac action potential is attributed to three different ions sodium, potassium, and calcium. Sodium is typically fine, but when you have alterations in potassium, the repolarization time changes in a cardiac cell. So if you have too much potassium relative to calcium, you're more prone to arrhythmia, VT, VF, I mean really terrible things. This is why one of the first things that you should consider in a patient with hyperkalemia is calcium, so that you can restore that potassium-calcium balance. And again, none of this is going to make sense unless you check out the show notes. So if this isn't jiving in your mind, just go ahead and take a look at the show notes and remember calcium first. So that dovetails really nicely into the causes of hyperkalemia and the treatment of hyperkalemia. John, what's one of the major causes of hyperkalemia? So there's three main causes. One is the shifting of potassium out of the cell. The second one will be impaired renal elimination of potassium. And finally, and the third one will be increased intake of potassium. And I might highlight that there's only two reasons that your total body potassium can go up, and that's impaired renal elimination 
or increased intake. The shifting is just shifting. It's not changes in total body potassium. Let's talk about shifting first. Shifting occurs because the body prefers most of the potassium to be intracellular. Let's talk about some of the most common causes of intracellular shifts in hyperkalemia. So one of them is acidosis. And this occurs because protons like to shift inside the cell to sort of act as a buffer. So if your serum is too acidic or acidemic, you want to take some of those protons and put them inside your cell to reduce the acidity of your serum. The problem is that when you shift a proton into the cell, you have to shift something out. And that thing that you shift out is potassium. So those patients, especially with a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, very, very common that you're going to shift that proton in, shift the potassium out, and have this elevated serum potassium level. Another common cause is diabetes. And this is owed to the reduced insulin. Insulin stimulates the sodium-potassium ATPase, which, remember, pumps sodium out and potassium in. If you reduce the activity of a pump that pumps the potassium into the cells, you're going to end up with increased serum potassium. Another one to talk about is an acute increase in osmolality, especially in things like hyperglycemia or when you're using mannitol, for example. This physiology is a little bit more complex. It's because of increased concentration of the serum in general. So pretty much all of the things, sodium, potassium, etc., will be concentrated inside of your bloodstream. And especially in DKA, where this is very, very common, acidosis will worsen that phenomenon. What about an acute cell tissue breakdown, such as rhabdomyositis? Myosis. So anytime you break open cells, remember that potassium is the major intracellular ion. So if you break those open, all that potassium floods into the extracellular space, including your serum. What about certain drugs that cause intracellular shifts? I heard digoxin, beta blockers, for example. Very similar to insulin. These drugs inhibit the sodium potassium ATPase to some extent. So if you inhibit that channel, you have less potassium going into the cells. But the common theme about all of this is that it's just shifting. It's taking all that potassium that should have been inside the cell and putting it outside. So now let's move on and talk about the impaired elimination of potassium. This is a common cause of hyperkalemia and renal failure. We won't dive into the physiology of each and every one of these, but in general, renal insufficiency, decreased GFR, will cause decreased excretion of potassium, and then some of the other things like hypoaldosteronism, some medications like spironolactone, heart failure, and constipation. We'll put some of those in the show notes. But all those things can cause you to not eliminate as much potassium as you should. Let's move on to the third cause, and that's excessive intake of potassium. And this one's pretty straightforward. You done took a bunch of potassium from the outside, and you put it on the inside. When does that happen for patients? Sometimes it will happen when a patient is taking maintenance dose of potassium and they develop an, a bout of impaired renal function, or maybe they took too many medications on accident, or maybe we repleted them too fast in the setting of end-stage renal disease, so on and so forth. Not all of them are frank overdoses. What are our listeners going to see in their hyperkalemic patient? Listeners out there, I am so sorry, but for most of the electrolyte abnormalities, although there are classic symptoms that we talk about in hyperkalemia, things like nausea, muscle pain, paresthesia, none of these are sensitive nor specific. The one benefit that you have in hyperkalemia is that there is a sort of prescripted trend of EKG changes that do occur as your serum potassium goes up. And we'll talk about those in a second. But from a presentation standpoint, you really can't tell at the bedside that a patient has hyperkalemia. The things that would point me to thinking that a patient does have hyperkalemia 
is, you know, let's say they come in with decreased urine output, bradycardia, altered mental status. I'm starting to think like this patient may have an elevated K. I would say that that's still not sensitive or specific necessarily. So you mentioned EKG, and obviously that's important when you're worried about life-threatening arrhythmias associated with very high potassium levels. What about if your patient's potassium is 5.6? Are you checking an EKG on them too? I'll check an EKG on everybody uh, as a matter of standard practice, but you may not see EKG changes on a 5.6 potassium. The scarier thing is that your patients with renal failure who are used to elevated potassium, you may not see EKG changes when their potassium is 9. I mean, it's rare, but I've seen high potassiums and nearly zero EKG changes. So we keep hinting at these. Let's talk about the progression of EKG changes in these patients. What's the first thing that happens? So when your potassium is above typically 5.5, the first thing you'll notice is tall peaked T waves. The importance here is that you want to look at the T waves relative to the QRS complex. So yeah, your T waves may not be through the roof, but if your T waves are like greater than 50% of your QRS complex and are starting to go up and up and you compare it to the previous one and it did not look that way, that's a peak T wave. So don't let the absolute distance in millivolts of that T wave fool you into thinking that it's Mm. not peaked. That's a good point. I think we've all seen the classic hugely peaked T waves, but... I'm glad you brought that up. The second thing that you'll see is the flattening of the P wave and a little bit of prolonging of the PR interval. In this stage, and because of this physiology, it's very common to see patients with bradycardia and high-degree AV nodal blocks. And the third thing you can see, hopefully you don't, but it happens, is broadening of your QRS complexes. And as the hyperkalemia worsens, this will eventually become a sine wave. And it's at this point that your patient has cardiovascular collapse and potentially imminent death. I always wondered what the sine wave was until I you know, took geometry and trig and got super nerdy. But uh, the sine wave, it sort of looks like the pleth. So you think mm-hmm. of a plethysmograph of like a, a pulse oximeter, the sine wave looks exactly like that. That looks great for a pulse oximeter, not so good for a QRS complex. The other way that it was explained to me is, imagine if you grab the P wave and grab the T wave and you start pulling them apart. That's sort of the progression of those EKG changes. First, you get that peak T wave, then you get the prolonging of the PR interval, prolonging of the QRS, and eventually it just looks like a pleth, a sine wave. I like that analogy. It's really nice. Now, as you progress along these changes, you are not only exposed to just risk of bradycardia, but now you are at risk for ventricular tachycardia, V-fib, and ultimately cardiac arrest. Ooh. Mm. So how do we stop this? How can we treat these patients with hyperkalemia? So before you do anything else in hyperkalemia, and you can risk stratify it by how urgent the situation is and how severe your hyperkalemia is, before you do anything else, either give calcium or at least consider giving calcium. Nothing else is going to save your patient from life-threatening arrhythmias other than the calcium. And remember, we talked about this important physiological concept earlier, being that the plateau phase of your cardiac action potential is dependent on a balance between potassium and calcium. If your potassium goes through the roof, you have an imbalanced action potential and you are at risk for arrhythmia. Giving calcium restores that balance. The reason we harp on giving calcium so early is that it's a relatively benign therapy with potentially life-saving implications. So if you have a patient who comes in, bradycardic, decreased urine output, altered mental status, and you see maybe peak T waves on telly, I'm giving calcium before I even get my BMP. 
Absolutely. Now, let me ask you this. What kind of calcium should I give them? There are generally two different formulations that we can use on an inpatient setting, and that is calcium gluconate and calcium chloride. Calcium gluconate, it's a lower concentration. It is safe in peripheral IVs. And calcium chloride is a little bit more concentrated and a little bit more veno-irritive. So if you give it in a peripheral IV, you can potentially cause a lot of irritation and even extravasation and skin damage, kind of like pressors. So classically, if you're going to give calcium chloride, you should give it in a central line or an IO. But of course, if the patient is crashing, that's kind of all you can do. The difference between chloride and gluconate is that one gram of calcium chloride is worth about three grams of calcium gluconate. So keeping that sort of um, ratio in mind. What's your starting dose of calcium gluconate? If I maybe think the patient has hyperkalemia, I'm going to go ahead and give two grams of calcium gluconate. If I for sure know they have hyperkalemia, I'm giving three, sometimes four, depending on the patient's calcium level. So I might do like a two, get their BMP, give them another two kind of thing. If you're seeing EKG changes? If I'm seeing EKG changes, I'm going to give three to four. But if I'm just guessing, I'll give two, get my BMP, and then consider giving another one or two, depending on the calcium and the potassium. So you hinted at risk stratification, and I totally agree. In general, if your patient's asymptomatic, like just coming in, doing just fine, has a little bit of an elevated potassium, say 6, 6.2, their EKG is not crazy, you've already given them calcium, it's fine. You don't need to go nuts with lowering this patient's potassium and putting in a VASCATH and starting emergent dialysis. What should we do, though? So let me hit you with a scenario. All right, so Phil comes back in with a cough. I mean, he's had a rough year. He already had ARDS once, then he got pneumonia. So he's coming in early this time because he's been worried. Workup is entirely negative, but on his BMP, his potassium is 5.8. He's got no symptoms yet. You check an EKG, no changes yet. So what do you do? I'm given a gram of calcium because that's what we do. Even though he's 5.8, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's no real risk to giving calcium. And in the off chance that this is something that may progress to being life-threatening, why would you not treat that? Okay. Okay. And now we're starting to question ourselves, is this shifting? Is this renal failure? What else is going on? Do you know what his creatinine is? Is it normal? Or is it elevated? Let's say it's normal. So his creatinine is normal. So maybe this is just a simple case of potassium shifting. Because this is non-emergent therapy, he's really asymptomatic, we've already given calcium, I am comfortable just giving this patient medications to shift that potassium back into the cell. So you don't think he needs a potassium eliminator in this scenario? I think that's an interesting discussion, and you could obviously trend his BMP. However, assuming this is real and not something like hemolysis, Mm -hmm. I have to question if this patient has not taken any exogenous potassium and he doesn't have renal failure, his urine output is just fine, he doesn't have any GI abnormalities, I really don't have anything that points me in the direction to thinking his total body potassium is elevated. And in that scenario, if his total body potassium is not elevated, why would I need to eliminate the potassium in his body? Okay. You know, we talk a lot about things like dialysis, which he clearly doesn't need right now, and KXLate, which we have KXLate lovers and KXLate haters. KXLate is a controversial medication because although it does bind and eliminate potassium through the gut, there are some case reports of GI ischemia, poor efficacy. So if he potentially could just respond to shifting, why not start with that? 
Okay, that makes sense to me. So what are you going to use to shift it? There are a variety of options. We could use insulin supplemented with dextrose, 50% in water. We could use bicarbonate push, or we could use albuterol. I think in Phil, I would probably be comfortable using insulin and D50 and potentially bicarbonate, depending on his presentation. And I think the good strategy would just be shift, watch, and wait. If my next BMP, my K is normal, I know it worked. And if it stays normal, I know it worked. And if my next BMP has a K that's elevated or he becomes symptomatic, develops EKG changes, I know I need to consider removal. So we talked about using things like K-exalate to bind potassium in the gut and eliminate it that way. Is there any other way to eliminate it? Can I renally excrete it? So you could. You could use loop diuretic, an NKCC2 channel inhibitor or uh, furosemide, terosemide, bumex, that kind of stuff. Isn't it torosemide? Torosemide, I guess, would be the proper way to pronounce that yeah whatever (laughs) you can renally excrete it by inhibiting the channels that reabsorb potassium in the loop of henley via a loop diuretic we just finished talking about phil with a non-emergent hyperkalemia with no renal failure so let's flip the script a little bit and say his wife phyllis comes in phyllis and she don't you ever learn i know she has a potassium of 6.2. Okay. She has, we, we presume, a new AKI, although we don't have a baseline creatinine on her. Okay. With a creatinine of 1.6. And she also has no EKG changes. Okay. What are you going to treat her with? So provided this uh, potassium is real, again, first I'm going to give calcium. After that point, I am going to consider some of the therapies that could potentially shift this potassium back into the cell. So again, talking about my insulin and D50, my bicarbonate, potentially albuterol, which is logistically challenging and has its own side effects. So I may be less inclined to use that one. When we talk about albuterol for the treatment of hyperkalemia, all I really need is like a 2.5 milligram duoneb, right? That's enough? That's where the dose of albuterol is different for hyperkalemia than we're all used to in our COPDers and asthmatic. So you want to use albuterol by, albuterol by itself. You don't need duoneb. And you want to use 10 milligrams where you're normally using two and a half. So that's four times the amount. And you want to give it in a continuous neb. So over 30 minutes or an hour. I've seen people go as high as 20 milligrams to as needed. But remember, you know, this is going to cause significant tachycardia. You may even worsen acidemia by causing a type B lactic acidosis. And so just things to consider. When we talk about things like Lasix, probably not going to be that much value in this patient, especially if she doesn't just have a pre-renal AKI, if this is a real ATN. So then we start talking about, do we need to consider dialyzing this patient or do we need to consider something like KXLate? I may be more inclined to consider KXLate, although I don't want to. I think in her too, I'd be inclined to shift and watch. But if she were to continue to rise, you have yourself asking, how am I going to eliminate this potassium now? Mm. This is a classic debate. So, you know, one of the things that we all talk about, we have a lot of KXLate haters, like I said. But then the question becomes, if, if not KXLate, if you run into a scenario where you have to eliminate the potassium, if not KXLate, then what? Mm-hmm. What I mean, what else? Especially in your renal patients. So really, your only option there is dialysis. More recently, there are a few medications that are newly FDA approved for gut removal of potassium that have not been associated with GI ischemia. That is Patriomer, aka Veltowasa, 
uh, and then also Lokelma, which was recently approved by the FDA. Mm. We don't have these on formulary, so our options for potassium elimination are pretty much Lasix, Kxalate, and dialysis. Let's, uh, let's transition from kind of the non-emergent treatments of hyperkalemia and kind of get back to the emergent treatment of hyperkalemia outside of calcium. So rather than Phyllis of having a potassium of 6.2, let's change that and say her potassium is 7.5 and she's got peaked T waves. Okay. And also an AKI on top of her CKD. Right. Now I'm starting to get worried that we may need to dialyze this patient, especially if we start to see worsening EKG changes, if we see some bradycardia, if there's no hope for eliminating this potassium renally, we're going to have to start considering dialysis. Now, even though this becomes more emergent therapy, it doesn't mean you forget the basics. Still consider calcium and still consider shifting these patients if you can. Bicarb, insulin, Now I may consider albuterol in this patient if it's really high and she's really symptomatic as a bridge to definitive therapy being dialysis. So what's your dialysis trigger? My dialysis trigger is going to be new EKG changes, especially if they're progressed beyond a simple peak T wave, but may even consider if it's just a peak T wave. If you have a sine wave, the patient needs to be dialyzed. If you have a widened QRS, the patient needs to be dialyzed. Absolutely. And then also bradycardia, altered mental status, or just expected clinical course. I find a lot of times when you have truly symptomatic hyperkalemia in a patient without just routine end-stage renal disease, it's because of something really, really bad going on. So nine times out of 10, you're initiating a lot of these therapies like CRT, shock management, in conjunction with your management of hyperkalemia. What's the chances if there's no EKG changes and your potassium's above seven in a chronic kidney disease patient, what is the chances your intracellular treatment is going to work? seems like they're going to need dialysis, right? It's a high likelihood that they will work temporarily. Right. But it is an even higher likelihood that down the line, you're going to repeat that BMP in that case still going to be up. It's very classic. The patient comes in with a K of seven. You treat them, repeat the BMP. Everything looks great. Got it down to like six, 5.7, repeat it again. And now it's back up to 7.1. Mm-hmm. And so it's this classic situation of like shift, reshift, shift, reshift. And these therapies aren't without their harm. Bicarb can make a patient too hypertonic, especially if you're pushing amp after amp. And insulin, especially in critically ill patients, can end up with significant hypoglycemia. I've seen one amp of D50 not doing the trick, Absolutely. even though you're just giving 10 units of IV insulin. Yeah. yeah, you need to remember to recheck your glucose a certain period of time after giving that D50, because I have definitely seen ICU patients need multiple rounds of d50 after one dose of 10 units of regular insulin do you just check it once after you give it that's enough i don't know how frequently you should check it i would say Um, i would be comfortable a a couple times every 30 minutes for at least four yeah maybe five times to be safe unless you know this patient's super hyperglycemic and can tolerate it you know if you gave me 10 units of iv insulin even if you gave me d50 i imagine i'd get kind of hypoglycemic in an hour or two seen it happen a lot All right, so to summarize, non-emergent therapy, you probably have time to just give them calcium and then shift their potassium intracellularly. Kind of in between kidney disease, uh, you probably still have time to shift and watch, but no, you're going to have to choose some way to eliminate that potassium, caxalate or some of the newer agents or dialysis. And then emergent therapy, give calcium, shift them as a bridge to dialysis as a definitive therapy. Very nice.
really, hyperkalemia is just a finesse game. A lot of times it's just watch and wait, and then other times it's just best practice, be aggressive with your calcium, be on the lookout for it before the BMP comes, especially if the patient presents with things like bradycardia, renal failure, altered mental status, and if not KXLate, then what? Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. And give calcium for patients with hyperkalemia.